Welcome to Live Sense 8. I'm Sheila Applegate. And I'm Zach Hansen. And a special shout out to Justin Applegate for the composition of the Live Sense 8 podcast music. In this podcast, we dive deep into the concepts of consciousness and other interesting trivia in the Netflix original series, Sense8. We're doing an episode-by-episode exploration of how we can live a Sense8 life, and we're also talking with cast and crew and team members of Sense8 to hear the experience from their perspective. Enjoy the show. What's going on in the world of Sense8? Zach and I saw The Last Man in San Francisco in the theater this past week with a role by Maximilian Ewalt, who plays Grace. Michael Summers, who plays Bug, had a very quick, fun scene in it as well. It is a very powerful movie, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is able to see it. We do have some special birthdays that I'd like to honor this week, and that is Sandra Fish, who plays Janet, City Nickhead, who has been on our show and is one of the number one fans of Sensei in the world of social media, and our dear friend Martin Earhart, who is working on the documentary and will be back to visit us again in 2020. We're excited about that. J. Michael Straczynski's autobiography, Becoming Superman, is now out in bookstores, so that is pretty exciting. And Brian is in a new show, Treadstone, which will be coming out in the fall. Don't forget that we are coming up on August 8th, which is the Sense8 rewatch. So be sure to watch Sense8 on August 8th. Remind Netflix and the world that this is still a very important show. If you can't watch it all day, maybe your cat would love to watch it that day or your goldfish. And then a little personal news. I am taking the sensate sensibility of my life out more into the world. I'm kicking off a Beyond the Portal workshop tour that will kick off in Syracuse, New York on September 21st. And I'm so honored that Maximilian Ewalt and James Motlow will be joining me for that. And then we get to play for a little while before I go on to Connecticut in October, and North Carolina, and then LA, and in 2020, we'll do repeat all those cities and add some more states with um, Florida, Colorado, and more on the list, and maybe head out into other countries as well. That workshop is a space where I'll be communicating beyond the physical, so it is very sensate. And I would love for you to check it out if you're nearby. Just check out SheilaAppleGate.com to find out the tour. It'll be a culmination of communicating with divine messengers, 
loved ones who've crossed over from people in the audience, and really making sure that there's practical application to help you have a better life in the physical world and encourage you to live from those frequencies that here on this show we think of as the sensate gifts. All right, let's get on with the show. This season two, episode nine, what family actually means. It was directed by Lana Wachowski, created by Lana and Lily Wachowski and J. Michael Straczynski. It was written by Lana Wachowski and J. Michael Straczynski. A family wedding stirs up more trouble for Nomi. No surprise. Daniela goes all out to land Lido the perfect role. One of the sensates faces a devastating loss. We took that off of IMDb, and when I pulled it, I was like, who? <laughs> what devastating loss? But <laughs> since you've already watched the episode... Can sensates <laughs> lose? <laughs> oh, good point. We're going to go deep into that. So it's obviously referring to the death of Will's dad, but um, We have on. other things to talk about first. Right, and at the end of the episode, <laughs> when we're talking about that, let's remember this moment, because can a sensate really lose? Can anyone really lose anyone? Ooh, the questions to be answered when you stay through. So, Zach. Sheil. What does family really mean? That is the theme of this episode, and they do a pretty good job, I think. I think we could really delve in more throughout another season, perhaps, about what family <laughs> actually means. But they had some good strokes, I think. What do you think? Yeah, I think they show lots of different variations, and I think that is part of the issue and part of the message, right? Is family just biological family, or... Is it the ones who show up for you? Is there a biological bond no matter what the circumstances and relationships are? Pretty interesting conversation. It is, it is. And the other thing, so we start out the episode with Nomi at the rehearsal dinner for her sister. And how many of us have had that experience where we change and we like who we are, we have what we perceive as healthy relationships, and then we go back home and we get placed into these roles that we were given as child. And sometimes we feel like we are trapped in them, in those situations. So it's really common for family events to be huge growth and trigger um, situations for people. Trigger factories. Trigger factories. <laughs> and joy, right? Because on some level, they're the people that know you the best. And then when you're in adulthood, on some levels, they're the people that know you the least if they haven't watched you evolve over time. And Nomi really represents that because she was born Michael and she's now Nomi. And isn't that what she's always wanted is to be known this is a little bit of a uh, tangent but it's on subject kind of so last night i had this dream and it was kind of like a family reunion cool. it was very interesting and i was thinking about it this morning as I woke up and i'm like oh yeah we're going to talk about what family actually means uh today in the podcast because like oh, that's so cool but in the dream i was just i mean it was so emotional it was filled with so much love and from 
people in my life that some of them I would have not even thought that I was that close to. Nice. But you never know who's got your back when you're not looking and um, those kind of things, you know, that I think there's a lot of parts of our lives that go unseen. And so in the dreamscape, the the roles that we play for each other on an evolutionary standpoint as well. Like sometimes we we have family members who we don't get along with, but they actually are there to play that role so we can grow. Because that's what all relationships are for, growth, right? So anyway, it was super cool. There was so much love, and I was just hugging all these people that have been my life, and I was just like, wow, this is so awesome. So all right, there's my my little dream. That's awesome. Before this episode. (laughs) So you were already doing the episode in the nighttime. Isn't it great that we can get a lot of work done while we sleep? (laughs) So going to the rehearsal dinner, there was a couple things. First of all, it is the first time that I saw Janet since we were actually hanging out with Sandy, right? So I feel like I knew Sandra pretty well over the last year because we had uh, a lot of communications and developed a friendship. But having been in San Francisco physically with her, and that was normal, but then then after hanging (laughs) out with the real Sandra and then seeing... Her first of all, kudos, Sandra, because Amen. you were amazing, <laughs> and also um, I want to give a shout out to the makeup artist and hair because that did not even look like the one I know, right? Right. Well, she's such a great actress too. I know, it's like right. This is not even the person, <laughs> and like there was just no semblance. And in, in in when we talked to her about this in her episode with us. She said as much, too. She's like, no way, I'm not even, like, right. no relations to this character <laughs> whatsoever. And uh, it's true. <laughs> it is so true. But, it you was know, she's kind a- of, I was kind of repulsed to be, to watch, to be honest. Like, there was this, like, oh, this isn't even accurate. Like, <laughs> right? Like, it's so, it was so interesting. Yeah. And, and, I mean, obviously, that is what acting is. And it's something for us to remember when we like fall in love with a character and project that onto a cl- uh, to the actor right. too. Like, you know, this is a, they're acting. They're and, we, acting. and we've talked about this uh, <laughs> in previous podcasts too. And about, yeah. And some of the characters, well, it, it's tricky here because, um, we do know that the writers did, they work in a way that they weave in. And that's probably in a lot of television series, right? They weave in some of the characters and personalities that they see, in the actors and some of those when the actor matches the frequency or the vibration like maximilian you know i'm a lot of her character um was in there but you have the you know i'm sure that whispers is a little different too (laughs) right and caffius's arch nemesis yeah oh well i like him anyway (laughs) yeah anyway so that was cool. But thinking about that and using, you know, you were really triggered by Janet. I was really triggered by Nomi's behavior, too. And we can talk about some of that. But I think that was the point. If we go back to the beginning where they did the creative choice to make us feel uncomfortable in the first episodes as people were unfolding... I think we were really, for me, I feel like it was purposely making me feel uncomfortable with Nomi's behavior so that I could take it 
to another level of understanding. I found her extremely narcissistic in this episode. <laughs> uh, how so? Give us some examples. I, I say that, but I also believe that that, that it, it, it created a space. So before I go into the details of my complaining about her, let me say um, it created a space for me to explore and, and really from someone who hasn't gone through that experience, relate what her life experience must have been to things in, in my own life. So going to the rehearsal dinner, not wanting to do that, not wanting to be there, thinking about bowing out, making her toast about her, like yep. that. I mean, I get it for the plot, but it was more than that, right? No acknowledgement of the man that um, that her sister was marrying, her future brother-in-law, aside from to threaten him, you know, <laughs> with Wolfgang. Yeah, Wolfgang's like only part in the show. Right. <laughs> um, I will find you. <laughs> So this complaint of this, like, I'm the victim, they treat me like crap, but I'm drawing all the attention. I was in Tegan's shadow, but look at how much attention I'm drawing. And so you see in the later scene where Janet could be coming from, because while Nomi doesn't, Nomi feels like she was the outsider her whole life. She was struggling with something, right? So she was born into a body that didn't match her. So from early childhood, she was struggling with that. We don't know how long until she was able to put words to that, to identify it, to find it, to come to terms with it, to present that. But that dynamic would possibly have influenced the relationships the whole time. So her feeling of never being seen was partly her internal, I've never, I'm not seen because here I'm a woman or a girl inside this boy's body. So no matter how much attention I get, I never feel seen. So then seeing that Tegan is getting all this attention because she's comfortable with herself, but then not seeing how much attention she was drawing to herself throughout the time and that she had possibly learned to get attention with drama or conflict as a way to adapt to that. So you see this whole lifetime mm -hmm. of yeah. relationship and the idea that families are, I mean, it is, you know, we're talking about what does family mean? There's the clusters, there's soul family, but family units get defined pretty early and people get roles and those roles are projected and necessary for the family unit it becomes a necessary entity for the family unit to survive as it is so if if the family unit changes then everybody's roles get disruptive if if one person in the unit steps out of their role then everybody's role gets disrupted and everybody has to adjust to that so to me it's looking at that the adjustments that happen because you do and it's similar in sense eight you've got a cluster and then you've got the individuals right so the cluster becomes an entity the family becomes an entity and within that there's multiple personalities that are trying to so, you know, if we take it to the collective, it's oneness and the individuality. It's the ego and 
the existentialism. So existentialism? Yeah, I mean, it, it's loaded right from the first scene here. Yeah, we get to see, like you said, so Nomi was in the shadow of Tegan, and that's, she overcompensated. Exactly. Right, and then developed a personality out of this. Right. And it's very hard to deal with, and it's subconscious, and so I, even though she might not even be trying to be narcissistic, she is. Right. And, and, and that's yeah. kind of, that's been played out a lot, like when she was getting, in the other episode, when they were getting fitted for dresses, they were having that conversation, and then all of a sudden an emergency shows up, and she has to leave right away before Tegan could ask her for something special. Right. She's like, call me, right? And so, so we see this... This, to me, the very first time I watched this episode, I was like, oh, I'm so sick of Nomi, to be honest. But then listening to it again and really hearing and seeing and knowing the characters and I got to say they did really well because I really feel like in Nomi's way, she she met Tegan halfway on her narcissism <laughs> because oh, she did turn the speech around to be about her. Like she used herself for a minute a, and then right, she lived exactly. back. So I was like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I get it. Uh, good She's job. Trying. You know, right. It's like little engine thought she could. <laughs> but I think it's important, too, because the idea, the the socially diagnosed narcissism or social media diagnosed narcissism <laughs> is very common right now. And, you know, I have a clinical background. I mean, there are real diagnoses and there are social diagnoses. And that's become a trending social diagnosis, which is dangerous, right? Because we can separate ourselves. Maybe you should write a, a guide how to for Facebook, how to socially diagnose people. <laughs> if you're going to do this, let's make it proper. So, okay, so now we've got people make coming from their own perspective of how people are treating them and then labeling their friend, their partner or whatever as narcissistic in a way, you know, going through the social media checklist of what those attributes are. And I, I mean, we're doing it from the president down. I get that. It's in our it's in our consciousness right now. But you're going through that. You're seeing how you feel in those situations. And at times using that as a way to say, oh, it's all about them. They're just in this category. It's a way of otherness. It's a way of I don't have to deal with my own shit because this person was just a bad person. So what I like about this is that Nomi does have a lot of those tendencies. They do irritate me. I do love Nomi. I do know that Lomi, Nomi is a human being with beautiful relationships and the potential for that and caring attributes. So while one person could look at her, and her mom does, I mean, basically her mom is looking at her and, and kind of boxed her into that narcissism, in a way, probably not socially labeled, but she's dealing with that. This is She labeled her. This is her behavior, and I'm protecting myself from the pain of this relationship by putting her in this box. But we get to see the healthy relationships, and so we have to remember that just because we had a single experience with someone, if we don't look at the whole picture and we just limit them to that label, you know, that's on us. Yeah, that's on us. <laughs> so, but having said that, we get to the wedding later and it, it continues. I'm like, but okay, so 
we're going to jump up to the the wedding because I think it, it flows here and I think it's okay. But so we get to the wedding. I love the scene of them getting out of the car and running to the wedding because to me, I don't know if it was intended, but it is a total shout out to Four Weddings and a Funeral, which is an awesome movie. And it, it to me, it's like an iconic scene. For some reason, it had the whole energy of that. But we have her... She's the matron of honor, and she's coming to the wedding late, and Amanita's like, who starts a wedding? And they're putting her mom down for starting a wedding on time. The matron of honor should have been with the bride since sunrise, supporting her, helping her, making sure that her day isn't delayed or, you know, so like all of that is totally Clearly, unknown. Naomi did not read the manual. But in Amanita too, right? Like that's interesting, the three of them and whose family there, like who, why did she stay with those people versus, so... And then when the scene happens and the detective comes in, even Appendix. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I had no choice. Well, he watched her go in. He could have done this outside of the wedding. He didn't have to wait till the high light. He didn't have to wait till the middle of the wedding to do this. He that wouldn't to... be good TV, though. Right. I know. I know. But <laughs> we're taking this beyond TV <laughs> and we're using it to learn in our own lives. <laughs> we have choices. He yeah. did have a choice. He did have a choice. But um, but Amanita could have done it a little quieter, too. Like, it didn't have to be all dramatic. And it's, it was a great scene. It, so for television, yes, <laughs> they nailed it. <laughs> know me. <laughs> right. Anyway. Get to know me. All right. So here we have it. The Agent Bendix stormed in to the church mid-service. This is what happens when you think you can outsmart the law. Turn around, hands behind your back. Stop! Stop! Get your damn hands off her! Oh yeah, go ahead, obstruct. Get ready to arrest Miss Kaplan too, come on. Oh, I need it, it's okay. It's okay, it's not, this isn't your fault, it's this moron. He's had his head so far up his ass, he didn't bother to check. Check what? citizens of San Francisco's upper tax bracket. This man, Agent Jeffrey Bendix, has stormed into the middle of this sacred ceremony, violating this important moment for absolutely no other reason than the gratification of his male ego. Bullshit. I urge you to contact your congressperson. I'm a congressperson. <sighs> Nomi Marks is one of the most wanted fugitives in this city. Prove it! Show us the warrant, Agent Bendix. I have the arrest warrant. Right here. He doesn't have a warrant? Of course I have one. Dad? Agent Bendix. You know me, Marks is wanted by at least three different agencies in the federal system. I trust that you are familiar with the law firm Winslow, Wise, Allegretti, and Marks. I sincerely hope that you are going to show me the warrant. What did you do? She did something. She, she did some kind of hacking. This is bullshit. Take your hands off my daughter. I promise you, I will pursue a suit seeking the kind of damages that end the careers of men like you. Woo! 
had to have Bug giving him the boo on the way out the door. <laughs> I had to. Yeah, that was awesome. I mean, everybody just did. That was such a fun scene. That it, was so great. It was. I, I'm trying to think of how they could have made that more dramatic. And I'm really <laughs> fighting <laughs> some creative outlets here. Where, how could they have made it more dramatic? Right, yeah. Did you come to some? No, oh, no. Okay. Like, it was perfect. Yeah, the it was music, perfect. The clapping. Like, it was... It was the contrast was all set up like it was your heart. You're like, <laughs> yes, it's like a sports team, you know, like you right. feel like you're rooting for the sports team. And her dad comes through and stands up for her, calls him, calls her his daughter. You know, that's yeah, a beautiful moment. Very emotional. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that really is a turning point for the whole family, like we were talking about, you know, she becomes that catalyst for the family to change and to evolve, which is awesome. We had that when I first heard this, I was like, that's a really long lawyer office. Name. I know. And I'm like, that's got to mean something. But I didn't know anyone back then. But now I know. But I still don't know who Wise is. Do you? Nope. Yeah. I don't know if that was just put it. And then it is, is Marks. Nomi Marks is, I mean, that's her last name, but is that a shout out to anyone? I love that. And it's probably done in other shows. I just haven't paid that much attention, but I love the, the little shout outs to people they care about in the, you know, get your name in. So that was fun. And I don't know that way. It was just a great scene. And, and, you know, if I'm going to, Talk about people's social behavior. That's one thing. But television-wise, character-wise, I I love it. (laughs) And it is fun because it's their opportunity to have a voice in a community that they've felt excluded by. But then, you know, if we're going to go deeper, they're not seeing people. You know, we do that. So when Amanita does her grandstand and, you know higher tax bracket of you know <laughs> um San Francisco and stuff that's separateness again, right? So it is like how can we not judge either side? Like when how do we look into ourselves to see what group of people we have um grouped, what what we have villainized or labeled in a set versus seeing individuals. Because as individuals, there were a lot of people in that room that would have supported. So I think we just always have to remember anytime that we feel like an outsider, are we seeing individuals or are we seeing a perception that we've projected on people? Yeah, I think this, it's kind of like mindfulness in a way. Mindfulness takes time when you first start. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you have to be very diligent um, to start that path of mindfulness and meditation and things like that. But then I think this is the next step to that because it's it's so easy to slip into unconscious behavior because our society is set up that way. It's it's automatic. Right. It's intrinsic in our mind. So we really have to be diligent to stop and ask ourselves, am I identifying? Is there blanket statements going on? Am I clumping people together? Like, what is it? Because we, we all know there's two sides to a story and there's different perspectives to everything. And, and every there's eight, almost 8 billion people on the planet and each and every single one of us has a different reality. That's the truth. Right. So how can, you know, it's just kind of, it's absurd to think about. But 
I just think in order for us to, to move on, we have to take that upon ourselves and make that part of our mindfulness practice to make sure we're not, we're not practicing those things anymore. And if we take this um, series and the, the concept and the, the cluster opened up to each other without any judgment, right? Even though... Did they have a choice? That is the thing, though, right? Because they, they, we talk about this in the beginning, but that it is so much easier to get to know the truth and to find the similarities and the likeness in people when we get to know them, when we don't put up our own blocks. So the suppressed become the suppressors, right? We, if we feel hurt, then we projected and hurt others. That's what Janet did. She felt hurt. And I, I was thinking about Sandy, Sandra's backstory. Um, I believe she told us this in her episode that she, I could be totally making this up, but I had a flash of her saying that um, she imagined loving Michael so much I'm pretty sure she said this. So she just imagined the mom with a little boy and that they were really, really close. And then when he started to grow and she lost her little boy and and she pictured dancing with him when he was little and then society said he shouldn't. And, and when the norm, when he got bigger and the pain, like I feel like crying with the depth of pain that I believe she shared feeling that Janet had. So we think about that. Then she becomes the villain as she projects on Nomi. Right. But the whole thing, the layers of that, that if we don't take time to have so a lot of people are fighting their feelings of empathy, right? They're trying to protect themselves because they say they're too empathic and it's painful. But instead of protecting yourself, if you use it to get to know, to have compassion for people, that separation won't be there. So you're right. Did they have a choice in the cluster? Maybe not because they knew all of them. But just that that dynamic of family in the physical world is so much more difficult because we're not actually seeing people. We're not taking the time to get to know what's behind the screen, right? Where in the cluster, you did. all Everything's dropped. There's nothing hidden. But we had, they had more compassion because of that. Not more judgment. The more they got to know people, they didn't have more judgment. They had more love and compassion so if we can apply that to our earthly relationships, our very physical earthly relationships, and realize that instead of fighting or trying to be heard, if we just listen and experience them, we'll get a different perspective. I agree. All right, so next we're going to jump into a little bit of Caffius's story. I got a clip here, and this is where he goes to talk to Silas, after he finds out his men have been watching him, and he didn't know. I wanted to know why your men have been following me. Can I offer you a drink? Oh, no, thank you. I'll have a bourbon. I should have told you about my men, but I knew if I did, you'd have said you didn't want them. I don't. Your friends at the KDRP may know something about politics, but I know Nairobi. The true measure of a candidate's viability in this city is not measured by polls or numbers. 
you know that someone is a serious contender by the size of the bounty. There's a bounty on my head. There's a bounty on anyone who runs against Mandiba. How serious is it? I would say now. The price is somewhere between a beating and a kidnapping. But let's see what happens after your rally. This will tell us how dangerous they think you are. Are you telling me you think I should withdraw? Withdraw now and you'll have done the exact opposite of what you set out to do. Instead of undermining Mandiba's hold over this city and his control of Kibera, your withdrawal will serve to make him invincible. And I can't withdraw? No. And I can't claim to be like everyone else if I have armed guards following me everywhere I go. You are right to understand that politics requires courage. But if you're asking for advice, I would suggest you stop driving a bus where every day you arrive at the same appointed time. Will you answer our question honestly? As honestly as I can. Are you helping me because undermining Mandiba's control over the city is good for your business interests? The easiest decisions in this world are those where what is good for business is also good for your family. But family? You know I'm deeply indebted. And you know my daughter cares very much about you. But I must admit, I would never make such a presumption based on this alone. You asked for honesty. I'm in love with your mother. And it is my intention to ask her to marry me. Whoa. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Caffius, bus driver turned hero who saves mob boss, doesn't want to deal with him, turns politician, <laughs> is now being protected by said mob boss, who's now going to marry Caffius's mom. Talk about family, right? Right? <laughs> In business. <laughs> Again, it's another example of getting to know people, and it is politics almost everywhere, right? Um, the layers, the good people doing presumptuously bad things or questionable things, people going into it for the right reason, but needing to change some behaviors to be practical, finding their way, trying to be different than in it, right? You can't just say, oh, I'm not gonna show your, he's on a course now, like that he has to keep going in order to fulfill his intention. But in order to do that, he already has to make changes. And then you've got Silas, the same thing. He's playing in the system. He's got power. He can be ruthless. And he's a nice guy. And he's now in love he with his... He is ruthless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Having a be in a country that isn't mine, it's easier to not put my own biases and projections about politics and just look at it as a story. The looking at politics from that whole tangled mass of layeredness. <laughs> of corruption. <laughs> <laughs> Good doers or good intentions turn corrupted. Yeah. And still trying to do good things within it. You know, playing the system, learning the system. Um, do you do you try to break the system down or do you 
fight against it or do you get in it to try to change it? And that's always a decision. And then like with Cavius, now he's gotten, he's decided to do all of those, right? Kind of break down the power, compete against the power, get in to maybe change it. But now he's in it. Like he, he has to see this through one way or another. And then he just makes a promise to the little girl saying that he's not going to stop riding, driving the Van Damme. And now a really obvious thing is placed on him. You have a bounty on your head. You're on a brilliant bus stopping at the same place every time, every day. Not really smart. So he already just made a promise to a little girl that he can't keep. And that just the, the humanness of it all. It's pretty amazing and just a scene, you know? Yeah. I think this this scene also il- illustrates kind of the messiness of family situations and circumstances too, right? Because they, they're kind of developing a fa- – uh, they have a relationship, not very healthy. Caffius doesn't want to really be part of it, but he is. And often – and we've seen this in the show before where children are being used as manipulative tools, Right. And in this one, it wasn't blatantly obvious. It was kind of just innocent, right, with the whole situation that you talked about. But anyway, I just, I, I just kind of I do like this scene because of how messy it can show how entangled we get with different people. And I think it can apply just to really simple things like his line that the easiest decisions are the decisions that benefit both family and business like that's a conflict that goes to any worker at any level in the whole process. It's not just in politics, right? Do I please my boss or do I please my family? Do I stay late and make more money or do I go home and catch the kids softball game, right? So I think that that goes to a core human issue that we have when we talk about our system of work and business um, that affects everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes into people of poverty. Do I go rob the store and risk going to jail so I can feed my kids? And are my kids better off if I go do this for them and I end up in, you know, with a risk of leaving them later? I mean, that decision between business and family is across the spectrum. And it's not set up for it to often be both. But in reality, we have the capacity to create a humanity, a society in which there isn't conflict between those decisions all the time. But that's a core struggle of humanity right now, that we are constantly conflicted between those two. Yes. And it's a rare thing, you know. I made a choice to... Overall, I ca- I've chosen my children, my family, and developing a career at the same time and created a situation where I could do both together because I started my private practice, my career, with a desire to, to be a full-time mom, too. I made a choice to, to travel when it worked for them and to not travel, and then my parents came in and I had time to take care of, I had to take care of them do I resent that I had to give up some business? I, I actually don't because I was also working. But had I 
chosen that and not continued my work. So it's it's a very rare thing. And the only reason I think one is that that I was able to really navigate that is that I wasn't in a mainstream job, right? The the way out of that is getting out of the mainstream by being an entrepreneur, by being an artist, a creative. Not that that stops you because you still have obligations to both and those conflicts are still there, but maybe when we step out of the structure of society, we have more freedom to let those be both. Right. And it, those doing that also presents different challenges. Exactly. Very cool. So speaking of that, we're moving into Kala's conversation. She's not in this a lot, but there is this underlying theme of family that weaves to her. She has some pretty potent lines about family and raising kids and She's, you know, shopping for her friend who is brilliant and and is choosing to give up her career to have a baby. And Kala's mom is telling her that that's natural. So, you know, Kala is kind of trying to find herself in the situation. Yeah, what I really liked about this is we get to see Kala's mom come in and give her a lot of wisdom. So usually it's her dad. Right. And this time she can lean on her mom for a little bit of insight, you know, with a, a woman who's got a few more years under her belt. Yeah. And, and her mom is trying to, you know, a lot of us do want to have grandbabies. Like, you know, I do. Like, I, I want my, you know, I think I've, I might have even joked about it here. But when Sarah was in high school, they sent home those fake dolls and mechanical dolls to try to convince them not to have a baby and we we sent her back to school with both of us wanting her to have a baby (laughs) didn't work it backfired but I'm really conscious not to pressure either of my children that they're going to need to have babies one says they want one one says they don't and whatever yes I would love a grandkid so I can see where mom is pressuring her wanting the grandkid but she's also tuning in to I feel conflict in my daughter and I know something is up. And then she asks Kala later and she does. She has a very beautiful discussion with her. And one of the things I loved is Kala's response to that because she says to her mom, there are things we did not know about each other that we are processing. And in reference to Rajan yeah, and herself. Right. She's talking about Rajan because her mom's asking her what's really going on and there you know, her mom's trying to equate it to her relationship, which was different, right? But she's trying to uh, open the space. To me, I loved that line because that's there's no blame. There's just a truth about it. We're processing. It's such a healthy expression of relationship right there um, in that line that I just have to give a shout out to it. I, I really liked how um, after her mom said that having a family is a, one of the most natural things. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then Kala comes back. I thought this was a brilliant line. Yeah. She's like, well, cancer is natural too. So that shouldn't kind of be the staple. <laughs> like yeah. That shouldn't be the standard. And I think that's, that's awesome. That's right. Because there's so many natural things that aren't healthy. Well, right. Well, nature is both destructive and creative, right? Like every force of nature has both in it and it's all natural. We have instincts that are natural that maybe aren't the best choices to follow, right? So, yep. yeah, I, I, that was a brilliant line. I'm 
jumping, but, you know, we're recording this as there's a lot of discussion here in the States about the abortion laws. And I actually heard someone say that the DNA of cancer can change, too. So they were equating a cancer cell to a fetus, you know, in an argument um, just recently in the news, too, from a, a different perspective of it. But we don't think about that, right? Like we have things growing in our bodies all the time and that's natural. And some of them are healthy. <laughs> Viruses are natural, right? Like all of it, right? Most of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a lot of cool lines with Kala. And then we have one clip in which she's talking to Rajan's friend who comes to visit. Wow. A nice fixer upper Rajas got himself here. Um, you really didn't have to do this. If I can be frank, Mrs. Russell, I've met Raj quite a bit after your wedding, and it never occurred to me, not once. But the moment I saw your reaction to the fact that I hadn't been to your wedding, I realized the scale of my mistake. This is what they mean, I think, by the civilizing nature of women. <laughs> I mean, everyone makes mistakes, but I think it's important to make amends when appropriate. Like I said, you really didn't have to. No, but I did. And my karma has rewarded me with another opportunity to talk to you. Do you believe in karma, Mrs. Russell? I do, um, yes. Me too. Me too. Open it up with Raj, if you don't mind. It'll just mean more that way. Yeah, sure. And once again, congratulations to you both. Thank you. Bye for now. Okay, ew. <laughs> I just wanted to look at this line for a second. Um, and I want to relate it back to Lido and Daniela, too, because what I see in here and what's ew to me is obviously the, the frequency of him great acting again um, just puts a knot in my stomach of the manipulation. And, and I, I can you can feel that Kala is feeling it, but he's saying all the right things. And then he uses karma belief system as a way of manipulating and um, making it appear as it's a certain way. So just really quick to drop back over to when Daniela is, when he, when she's trying to get Lido his audition, she um, totally manipulates, right? I mean, awesome, another awesome scene, right? But these two kind of match together because it, to me, the language of spirituality has um, actually started to be used, similar to when I was complaining about narcissism and clinical diagnoses, being used mainstream manipulatively. So Daniela totally did that. She totally manipulated the phone. She's like back and forth, you know, making everyone feel like they need something. They're missing something. Lands in the audition. Love it. It was amazing. And then she's like, I just feel like it was meant to be. And she's using that idea. She's destiny. I think she says destiny, right? She was that concept. It made me think of like ultra spirituality, right? It's where you're, you're manipulating. But then but it really was destiny, I think, for her. She did believe that it was destiny for him to get it. She meant that, you know, she knew he meant to needed to get it, but she totally manipulated to do it and then used that 
sort of spiritual concept to do it. And I loved it when Daniela did it. It was awesome. But then here he does it and it's nauseating, but it's really the same thing. It's that using yep. manipulation and, and drawing on people's belief in spirituality as a way to manipulate. So it's just an interesting contradiction of the same frequency. Well, and in the show, we like Leto. Right. So we want and him we to... And we don't get... like this guy because he's kind of sleazy and he's been hitting on Kala for a while now. Right. Right. And we, at face value, he seems like he's just attracted to her. But this is this is the part in the series where I think there's a there could have been way more of a story oh, yeah. that we never explored because... Last time, we, we, we don't even know who was on the phone with Rajan when he was really upset, screaming and yelling at the phone when Kala came down. Yeah. And then this guy shows up with a package right. to his house. First thing I thought was, man, that's probably a bomb. Right. And it's supposed to scare him. And that's what he wanted. Right. Because he wanted and then Rajan he's like, to And then he's that. like, oh, make sure you open this with Rajan because she, she wouldn't, right? Like that was kind of like reverse psychology almost. She plays with it a little bit. That's all we see in the scene. Uh-huh. But it's kind of like super manipulative. Right. And because he wants Rajan to walk in and see a package and thinks it's a bomb. Like he wants it, him to go through that experience. If it was already open, he would just, it wouldn't have the impact. So he, yeah, he's totally manipulating the situation. They're, but it's the same behavior. It and is, we're rooting absolutely. for one of them and we're disgusted by the other. You know, and then also what you said, I think it is important to talk about that. Be, I mean, there's not much to say except, oh, I'm sad. Like that was, you know, like we know that it unfolded as it was supposed to. We're grateful for the finale. You know, maybe something will come later, but it will never be what it was. And, we have to tell the rest of that story ourselves, you know, fan, fan fiction, guys. Let's hear what we could do there. What do we think happened? You know, let's create. But also, let's just take a moment of silence for sadness <laughs> of, of the storyline that got lost. <laughs> and I think um, referring back to Lido and Del- Daniela and Hernando and what she did for Lido, what does family actually mean? Like, they're obviously a family unit. They're very right. close, like... Very close, those three, in many, many ways. And Hernando has been through Lido's depression before, but Daniela hasn't. And she doesn't give up on him. She stays up all night reading the script. And then she goes out of her way just because she believes in her friend or her her, her lover or whoever they are to each other. And right. so that's another example of family because families can you know, stick up for each other and manipulate situations to gain benefits for the family. So I thought that was another great example of a different look at family. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's woven into every scene here quite beautifully. And then we really come to the point. You you stuck with us. I told you at the <laughs> beginning of the episode, <laughs> we're going to end with this with this scene so um, one of the things, even before we get to the clip, is Riley is with Diego, and they're um, going in to the home where Raul was kept, and they're going through that. There's some you know, little mm-hmm. things in there. One of the things I picked up on in that, which is really another expression, is 
Diego didn't need Riley to translate. He knew exactly what Will was saying. And I pointed that out as like, it's another form of cluster. And you're like, well, he just knows him really well. And I, yeah, that's what we're talking about earlier, right? When we know people really well, these things are really natural. So it reminds us that we don't have to be born on the same birthday. The person doesn't have to be across the world. It, it comes from depth of connection. It reminds us that when we take time to get to know the person, even the what we might have appeared to be on the opposite side with us, we start to have all these abilities. Like we can have these abilities with people we're close to. Yeah, it's a very intimate connection. Yeah. Intimate being close. Like we need to be very, very close on subtle levels even too, not just like surface stuff, right? It's that closeness in relationships. It takes time right? a lot to get to understand people and how they function and how they think and their energies and all this kind of stuff so we can build that type of intimacy and I think we trust it more when we know the other person, but if we play with it, we allow that to be the case, right, too. But I think when we know people, when we experience it, we tend to, you know, like I will pick up the phone to write a text to someone as that's coming in, and that's happened a lot, right? I'm answering their questions when they're sending them or um I, I did this just a little while ago it was i was i sent something to one of my childhood friends that i we don't communicate that often anymore but we were so bonded in our childhood and um she i sent her something and then hours went by and all of a sudden i was like Oh, I wonder if she got it. And as I pick up the phone, and because it was over Facebook, so you could see when she got it. She got it as I grabbed the phone, looked at it. I could feel her picking it up after years of very little communication. Um, you know, another friend came into town. We hadn't talked in a couple of years. And all of a sudden, I didn't know she was in town. She's in another state. And I text her and I say to her, can you talk today? And I get a text back and she says, I'm in town. My mom's memorial is tomorrow. And so I go to her memorial the next day. Like, no communication. I knew her mom had died, but I had, that was months ago. I had no idea there was a memorial. But we do this so naturally with people we care about. Mm -hmm. And I think that that expression is really important too. And someone on um, Twitter, this isn't from this episode, but someone on Twitter asked about a scene in which Wolfgang, oh shoot, I can't, I can't fully remember. Oh, it was Wolfgang and Will, and it was about Independence Day. And, um, I think Will said, I don't understand or something. And he says, you wouldn't. Because he, he was referring to Felix knew him in a way that Will didn't know him. So even though they had this higher consciousness bond, the friendship bond was in there. So it's the same thing. It's like we don't, they're different bonds and they're, they're all valuable. I would agree, yeah. So now we're leading up. So that happens. And then we find out that Will's dad is dying. Another scene is Diego takes Riley 
and therefore Will to go see his dad because Will can't get to him. Um, and you see all of the cops there, right? That's another form of family that we have mm-hmm. to recognize. And um, the hospital is just filled as they all wait vigil for him um, in his final hours. So, you know, family, what does family really mean? <sighs> Who are you? It's me, Dad. Who the fuck are you? Uh, I want Will. I want my son. I'm so sorry. I wish you could be here. Where where are you? Are you okay? I'm okay, Dad. You're not okay. You're a government agent saying all kinds of fucked up shit about you. Are you drinking? What do you care? You're not supposed to be drinking, Dad. You're not here! I'm sorry. (sighs) I'm sorry, Dad. I should be here. I should be here. I'm so sorry. So there is so much in the scene. As I'm listening, I would have to say this is one of those clips that is a masterpiece within itself. And there's a lot of reasons I want to say that. But for those of you who maybe haven't seen the scene recently, go. I do like when we just listen to the words, but also go back and see it so in the beginning will's dad is in the hospital bed 
on the line of death. And we think of death as humans, we think of death as a moment, but it's actually a process and it continues on both sides of that moment that we call death. And so he's in that state already. The veil is open, the window is open. He's he's as much on the other side as he is here. And Riley comes in and he knows Will is with him. He can feel Will there. And then he opens his eyes and it's this woman that he doesn't know. And he's like, what the heck? Like, where's Will? Who are you? Get out of here. And it makes him angry when he opens his eyes back to the physical and he can't be with his son who he had just seen with his eyes closed. So that point of access that he has, we all have throughout our life. We often, because we are taught that we don't have it, we wait till death to experience it. But I've been with a lot of people as they crossed and that window will open for you at that moment. You're stepping out of time you're stepping out of linear time and you're stepping out of the illusion of physicality. And so that freedom, at that point, he had access to everything that we see the cluster having. And it's such a beautiful expression of that. And then when Will comes into it, we have the timelessness of them. Will is moving in and out of his memories. And and it's that moment where we can come to terms with some of the pain too because we have the that the last physical words that were spoken were coming not from his dad but from the alcoholic the the disease of alcoholism the pain and will could have without this moment or without understanding that life doesn't end at that last physical contact he could have held that guilt for the rest of his life that he didn't make it physically home, that his dad drank because he left, that guilt from childhood, the, the messiness of being a child of an alcoholic. But, but even if you're not a child of alcoholic, there are so many people who regret that they didn't make it back to their loved one in those final moments, or they regret that they didn't say the right thing in the last moment. So this scene is so important because it is essential that we remember that, that the relationship doesn't end at death, that that window is there for us, and that we were there with them even if we weren't there physically because they too are free to experience it during that time. So um, I have more to say, but I'm going to let you have a voice for a minute. And just that for me... It's such a beautiful expression of the final moments of what we call life as I witness it. To me, is kind of a, I don't, it's a little bit sweet, but a whole lot of bitter mm -hmm. for me. It's sweet in the regards that his dad was able to see Will and they were able to communicate and kind of go back to a good memory they had together because it doesn't seem like they had a lot, to be honest. They liked each other, but from what we've seen in the show, it was just like a okay thing. And one of the things that I noticed after watching this um, scene a couple of times, actually, was when they're playing catch, 
there's actually a beer bottle at his dad's feet. Mm-hmm. So not only is he going to work, he's going to work drunk as a police officer. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's all the guilt and things that he put on Will. And Will's already feeling super terrible as it is. And he can't talk about his situation, right? So it was, it was a great thing that um, Diego was willing to bring Riley into that room because she wasn't very welcome. She wasn't one of, she didn't belong to that family, but Will did. And she's kind of been hanging out. So that's kind of like a... Uh, more about the family and stuff. So for me, it was like a very kind of sweet, super bitter moment um, for Will. Right. And I think that, that that is the other part of it. And um, when we're listening to it, one of the things I, I know, I mean, child of alcoholism, the disease of alcoholism is, is painful extremely painful and it doesn't go away it it didn't get healed um and i did and it's not that it got healed in that moment it's that it opened the gateway for the healing to continue so that will didn't get stuck and stagnant in that trauma of the that point but what we see is he's coming to terms too, right? So these are things that happen as we're crossing over that threshold that and from the physical per- perspective we see as a line, and that is the evaluation of the life, the why, what was important, and his dad is, is processing that. And we only get a glimpse of that, but that processing is going on, and and so it, it does go back to Silas's point, right? The, the talk that we had about the conflict, the making mm-hmm. decisions between business and family and how do you make them. And, and we know from earlier scenes that that alcoholism, though it may be genetic tendencies, was triggered by his career. Like that's a common Right. trigger of the career and the post-traumatic stress syndrome and medica- self-medicating. So you've got the the dedication to the career, the feeling of duty, duty calls, and the conflict, the all of it mixed and in together. In in this particular situation, he's actually has a duty to his family and his brothers in blue. Mhm. Right? Cuz that that's a right. family because and they're there family? to help eat. Right, right, exactly. So And now you take it back, all right, so we're seeing it, and it feels pretty shitty on Will. Will's making the same decisions. Will chose drugs as a way to fulfill his duty of finding Whisper. He put Mm -hmm. himself in that state. He he put the the cluster, the, the whole process of uncovering this for the safety above his father, I, he learned it from his dad. It's passed down. That conflict that Silas talked about, that core, that it's it's one of our core human conflicts, is witnessed here multi-generationally. Mm-hmm. At a moment of healing and transformation, and 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 really, it is when we step out of the physicality. Like, that's what this whole episode has been about, because... When we perceive things from the limited physical consciousness, the constraints of that, we can't heal. We can't move. So this 
we we can only get so far. We have to step into higher consciousness. Whether we're gifted a cluster that opens us up or something else do, does, we have to step into higher consciousness in order to heal the physicality of our existence. And this scene shows us a window into it. And too many of us, by societal teaching, wait until death or think that if it didn't happen at death, we have to wait till we die because it's too late. And that's why we have to take that moment that's in this scene for just a couple minutes at the threshold of Will's father's death. And in our lives, we have to take that threshold and we have to stretch it to include eternity. And we're, we navigate within that and everything changes. So it sounds like you have a lot of experience with this. <laughs> I am a little passionate about this. <laughs> I want the world to know that this is what we have to do to make happiness. And I, I just want the world to know I wa- I, I, and can it's you, accessible can you, to us. It is accessible if we know it's accessible. Right, that's why I'm telling everyone it's accessible. That's why the Wachowski well, you're, and you're kind of letting us, right? You're kind of letting us know that's a, a potential, but is there any way that you can help us <laughs> know how to do it? Zach is uh, <laughs> turning this into an infomercial. I'm here. not trying to, but it's this, <laughs> no, is, this is a big topic. I do know, right. but not everybody knows, okay. and that's why. So I am passionate about this, and you know, you guys know because you've been listening to us for over a year now. Well, if you came in later, you might have done it a little quicker than we did. But um, yes, of course, this is my passion is to help uh, people and to normalize, to remember. Like, that's why we started this podcast in the first place is because I'm dedicated to helping people live this way, live as if you're in a cluster, live in that space that is expanded from death. I think that when we remember and we learn to communicate and we stretch that moment out and we communicate beyond physicality, everything changes. So that's what I teach. So I don't know you what have, you want you me have, to say. Like, I think you everybody have knows most that. certainly helped me in that situation with healing my relationship with my mother after she passed away. Yeah. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but you have definitely helped me and given me the tools to heal and have that healthy relationship with her. And it's a thing like it's for real (laughs) and you can continue those relationships as as people cross over and you know, they can come give you messages and drop by and say hi and do all these things. If you're, if you're open to that potential, but I, you know, we, we talk about a lot of this, Sheila, would it be okay if, if somebody needs this right now in their life, how would they get a hold of you to have you direct them or, or, or lead them? Yeah. So my website, you guys know about Consciously Awesome. You can reach me from the Consciously Awesome website and my website's Sheila applegate.com also and um and your email address sheila just, okay. just write to me at sheila at sheila applegate.com all right well tell thank me you. what's going on <laughs> and for those of you who are listening like we we talk about this stuff all the time and there there are ways and there are methods and and sheila can help you if you're interested in mending relationships even in the physical too we you know part of your work is actually working with people who are still alive 
that you need to heal relationships with. And you can do this outside of the physical everyday today world too. So this is a, a very wide topic. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because you can help people like really live a better quality of life with emotional harmony and balance and great relationships. So I just, I just could, I can't keep it anymore. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I didn't mean to keep it. Like we did do this cause I wanted everyone to be able to, I, I want to help people in this way. However, whether it's from listening to this, from looking at it in shows, from me helping you directly, whatever, like that is, that's what I love to do. Excellent. So there it is, folks. <laughs> and you can you can contact Sheila through her website or Sheila at SheilaAppleGate.com. All right. I love you guys all for listening. I'm hoping that anything we teach here or, or share or open up your consciousness to, that it makes your life better. And if there's ever a way that I can help you more. All right. And on that note, thank you very much for listening to us and spending your time with us today. I got a big shout out to Sarah Applegate for editing the Live Sensate podcast. You can always reach out to us on Twitter at live underscore sense eight is our call sign. And until next time, stay connected. <laughs>